0: Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, where we aim to help you increase your charity's income and impact by sharing the experience and expertise of our guests. If you are enjoying the podcast, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can just tap the five-star rating once you've listened to a certain amount of it. I like to make it a bit more difficult on Spotify. And I always love to hear from people. So you can just drop me a message, find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Or email on hello at kedaconsulting.co.uk. I'm joined today by Mark Phillips, founder of fundraising agency Bluefrog. Mark's also got a really good blog called Queer Ideas, which I recommend you check out. There's some really good posts on there. We're going to be talking about individual fundraising, donor, donor needs, why people give. So welcome to the podcast. Mark, how are you today? Thank you.
1: I'm fine. Very happy to be here. Very excited about what we're going to chat about over the next hour.
0: Just remind me because I've been sloppy on my homework this morning. How long ago was it you set up Blue Frog? 1997. Wow so that's what 26
1: years? Almost. Yeah Yeah. 26 years at the end of August.
0: Yeah so a lot of experience of helping various charities and other non-profit organizations with individual fundraising and before that i know you're at like a number of sort of large national and international charities um i think was it like action aid and ymca and places like that
1: yeah it was, it was just the remembering two
0: incorrectly uh uh-huh.
1: yeah yeah action aid um that was my first job A couple of years there and i was very very lucky my boss left after about seven or eight months and it took him ages to get a replacement and so we were allowed to. To a fair amount of experimenting, and after okay. that, I moved to the YMCA, and I was the YMCA for about eight or nine years. Ended up as a head of fundraising there.
0: Cool. What sort of organisations do you work with? What's like a, a bit of a mix of the sort of clients you guys have?
1: Oh, across the board, really. It will be everyone from we work with a couple of universities, uh, St Andrews, um, Birmingham, uh, Nottingham, um, some big big charities, UNHCR alzheimer's uh society we work with fair share a big national sort of food provision organization for um for food banks some smaller medium cyber organizations like sense we've even got one bank uh, amongst our clients oh, right. <laughs> uh, ubs which is the swiss bank and they have a foundation uh, called- it their, their sort of philanthropy arm. that's it and we yeah. um and we work with them as well on ultra high net worth individuals it's it's my only opportunity to get in touch with multi multi millionaires Uh, (laughs) as a a fundraiser so yeah broad broad mix of uh of different organizations
0: Cool. and i think you as well as the organizations you work with you have a a pretty good oversight of what's happening in the sector in terms of that sort of individual fundraising i know sometimes you you'll sign up to different charities and just kind of check out what people are doing and obviously kind of see from i I don't know the various sort of conferences and things what's going on so i'm looking forward to getting some of your insight of what you think individual fundraising looks like at the moment out there like are people doing good things is there lots of rubbish stuff out there what's what's the sort of stuff that you're seeing
1: Yeah, plenty on that. We do a lot of research. We're constantly doing qualitative research. So speaking to donors, we do a lot of mystery shopping. So a lot, you know, anytime I hear someone's won an award for something, I tend to sign up and give them 50 pounds, 100 pounds or something, trying to get into the segment that should get some decent treatment. Mm. And often I'll give them two or three gifts as well. So I really sort of like burn myself in as a potential donor. And mm, I don't know. Nine times out of 10, it's incredibly disappointing how you're treated. You know, you, you get your one email and then you get the same email to the next gift and the same email to the next gift. And uh, yeah, it doesn't give you you know much joy as a donor. And that's what donors tell us. So yeah, plenty of plenty of analysis about what's going
0: on. Yeah. What's the the sort of thing that you find that fundraisers are wanting to do and and whether that sort of resonates with what donors want or is there a kind of like a, a difference there between those sort of donor needs and what fundraisers are, are kind of trying to do
1: yeah i i think it's a bit weird really you know, I, I, because i've been doing this for so long I, you know i can put myself into the shoes of a fresh young front fundraiser coming into the sector you know wanting to do something different can we get those young donors on board and you know what can we do that's ex- different and what's exciting and i think you know, to my mind, there's an awful lot of focus on that element there. You know, what, what can we do that's different? And there's a lot of projection. I think, you know, there's a fair number of fundraisers out there, you know, not all by all means, who almost like see themselves as the audience, you know, and it would be what, what would work for me as a 25, 26-year-old um, fundraiser. But, the, you know, the sad fact is that, you know, the vast majority of income that is, is given to charity today comes from older people. You know, chuck in, you know, the income that comes from legacies. I think that, I think the CAF numbers this year were about 12.7 billion. And what's legacy income at the moment? Four point something or other. You know, the vast majority of that money is coming from from older people. And when I say older people, 60, 65 plus. And I think we ignore their needs as a sector. And I think that's one of the reasons why income, you know, is, is broadly flat. You know, if, if we'd have kept pace with inflation, if we went back to 2005, uh, when we were generating, I think about nine or ten million, and we have kept pace with inflation, we'd be generating over sixteen billion pounds today. Even just keeping pace, and yeah. it's you know it's fallen and fallen. You know we had a big spike because of Ukraine in twenty two. My guess this year, next year's figures will will fall, maybe about eleven billion, because I don't think we'll maintain that. And and what do we see? You know we see wealthier donors. Giving more. And that's the situation at the moment. And those wealthier donors tend to be old. And I think we just ignore those needs of older donors, what they want. And that's what the older donors tell us all the time. You know, that they give often in spite of how they're treated rather than because of how they're treated.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one. As next so I guess over the last couple of years, like a, uh, I mean, we've just done a couple of episodes on some of those figures. So we had a couple of people from CAF on discussing mm-hmm. the. The research from last year, the giving reports, uh, we had Howard Lake on before that talking mm. about how given had stagnated really mm. over the last all, 10 to 20 years. Mm. And I guess over the last couple of years, it's probably been a bit, a bit disguised as well in terms of, as you mentioned, there's the response to Ukraine, there's kind of, you know, response to COVID. There've been a couple of other sort of emergency appeals that have brought in huge amounts that have maybe disguised some of that. So, mm. yeah, I think if there isn't, Another big thing. Then it will be interesting to see what level of drop there might be in the figures for well for this year when next year's kind of research comes out. And I suppose there's you know not just the fundraisers in their twenties coming into this sector, but I suppose for for people in their forties and fifties and things like that, the the people in those sort of fundraising director roles, it's still like a, a, I suppose we all have our biases and we we think about what would work for us and that sort of thing. So I suppose you know even the more senior people in the sector are still thinking, from the perspective of like a working age adult, rather than maybe a retired person who's in a completely different stage of their life and what their sort of expectations might be around having a relationship with the causes they support.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, and we we all do that. You know, it's it, it's yeah. part of. You know part of the way we exist you know you know the only way that we can interact with anything is really our own experience and it's yeah. it's normal and i think that we have to work extra hard to push ourselves Away from that, you know, one of the things that I do, uh, you know, you, you mentioned my blog earlier on, and I don't think I've blogged for a year. I just sort of you know, drop stuff onto sort of like LinkedIn normally these days, yeah. ideas. And, you know, every now and again, it's literally, I, I, you know, I will go out and I'll put a picture of a group of old people, for example, and say, yeah. don't forget if you're planning on changing the world, these are the people who are going to fund the revolution.
0: Mm.
1: And that's the case. that, And it's always been that way, really, that you know, the people who have the money are supporting the people who have the energy and have the enthusiasm in many ways. And it's not a bad thing. It's just that we have to recognise that, that mm. often younger people... Different period of life, spending their money on families, or they're not in particularly well-paid jobs. But once you get to that point where you're retired, you're an empty nester. That's when you really start focusing on how can you start tackling those things that you really that you really care about. And I think we could do a lot better of as, as a sector if that was almost like our primary aim you know, in life. You know, how can we engage nice, wealthy older people in in supporting supporting charities
0: yeah so maybe if we come at it from the angle of those people for a minute then because i know one of the things you look at a lot is what motivates people to give and those mm. sort of donor motivations what can you tell us about the work that you've done where you're actually hearing from those donors as opposed to fundraisers
1: um yeah we've we've done a couple of recent studies. The most recent study we've done, which is going to be published very soon, is a international study. It's partially funded by F&P Magazine, which is a great magazine, comes out of Australia, and uh, really recommend anyone to read it and get it online. Um, and it's a great fundraising publication. And we've done a joint campaign looking particularly at the current times when we're in this cost of living crisis, which is still very front of mind, why people are lapsing, why people are stopped giving, why people are switching. Because that's what we're really seeing. It's a lot of switching and stopping that we're looking at you know, at the moment. And the key thing that we've learned from that is the cost of living crisis, of course, it's impacting on some people and they're stopping giving because of that. But for many, many others, it's sort of a prompt, it's acting as a prompt to say: Do you really value the work that these organisations are doing, or do you appreciate the way that you are being treated by them? And when we push deeper, a lot of people are saying, "No, I don't think that either I'm valid or I'm not sure how my money is, you know, making a difference." And we're publicising publicizing this very uh, big. Be- that very soon, you know. I've just been involved in a couple of pitches recently, and uh, now we've got those out of the way. We're going to be, um, you know, having a big push on that. But it, it, it's just a reminder that people give, and when we, we think of giving, we almost like think that you're you're losing something, you're handing something over, you know, you're giving something away. You're not giving anything away. What you're doing is investing. You're doing something about something that you really value, that you're very concerned about. And it's, it's that point, you know, and for us at Blue Frog, we, you know, we identify and we, you know, we identified this years ago, that there are four key need states that when people are giving to charity, that they're trying to answer. If you look at the concept of need states as a commercial marketing um, technique, you know, it's very deep. My lovely example of this is, is Coca-Cola. That I always like to use that. You know, very few people buy Coca-Cola because they're thirsty. You buy it for many different reasons. You know, you, you buy it to give yourself an energy boost. And if you look at the spectrum of different Cokes that are available, so many different flavors, caffeine-free, some with added vitamins and minerals, you know, they're turning it into a health drink. There's so many different routes. And with charities, when you're when, what you're really looking at is, as I said, four key need states. One, solve that problem you care about. two. To tackle that sense of helplessness, we feel. You know, something happens, like Ukraine, what do we do about that? You know, we can look away, we can just, you know, ignore it. But so many of us thought, I need to do something. I don't want to sit here and look at what's happening. But we can take that, you know, across the board in terms of Afghanistan, what's happened in Syria. We can go back. So many different large-scale emergencies, people react. And at the moment, and with the cost of living crisis, it's exactly the same. People want to do something. They feel the, the the government has repeatedly failed. And two years ago, when we were doing this research, maybe even a year ago, quite honestly, it was all about anger. Now it's about sadness. It's this sense of sadness, particularly amongst the wealthier donors, you know. And, and don't forget that just 6% of donors are giving. You know, 40% of all the money that comes through individual giving to you know to charities. It's a small group. It's this sense of sadness that almost like my generation has let the side down in terms of where we are now. And this loss of social cohesion is a really big driver. And then you've got two other areas as well. You've got, you know, what we would call personal development about allowing people to demonstrate who they are what they believe in and and show others that and, you know it's very you know simple techniques that you can use for for that you know for example if you know if you've got an organization that's got a that you know a symbol that's recognized a badge or a flag or whatever you know if you put one of those in a you know in a mailing pack and you do a test once with your badge and once without your badge Your ROIs are massively different. You might be running an ROI without a badge at 0.35, drop the badge in, that recruitment ROI will go up to about 0.9, maybe even break even, simply because you've given a badge to somebody to demonstrate who they are and what they believe in. it, It works across the board. It works for legacy fundraising, works for cash, works for RG. We've been working with the Alzheimer's Society on their... Um, forget me not day, you know it's only been running a couple of years, but it, you know in terms of what it's returning, it's comparable to Christmas now in terms of an appeal that's gotten that's got a point in the the donor giving cycle. And also, finally, we we talk about the reward, the emotional reward, the thanking, but also the information. You know what is happening. You know what's happening about in Ukraine. Done some research, you know, recently with supporters of refugees. And the key point that they keep bringing up is, you know, what what's happening, what, what what's going on, what's happened to the people who've had to move out. This this desire to know, you know, I feel I'm part of the story now, and it's it's where we go next. And if you focus on those four key, answering those four need states, and you have to pull them together, you can't just focus on one or two. It's pulling them all together in a flow. It's a really really powerful way to think about giving.
0: And how how do people go about? Meeting those four needs is that kind of throughout the process of uh, sending out that kind of initial pack to try and get people on board, and then through the thanking, and then tr- you know updating them on on what's been used, and to kind of throughout that cycle.
1: Yeah, it's first of all, it's 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 number one. It's ha- how you put you position your your appeal, and as, as as donors say, you know all the time. I really, really don't know why this doesn't have more power. You know, I prefer being written to by a person rather than an organization. And that's one of the problems you have. If you have this over-designed, over-branded pack, you know, the humanity is leached out of it. You know, and I I often say the most powerful thing that you can put on the front of an envelope is a stamp. That is how we would communicate, you know, particularly if you're on 60s, 70s and 80s. You know, that's how you traditionally always communicated with your friends and family. And it demonstrates purpose. I am doing this. T- I'm communicating with you. I'm sending you this pack, you know, for a reason. Whereas a marketing communication, people know the difference now. You know, we, we were talking about a, a while ago a scandal beset a particular charity. And we're talking about what the charity needed to do. And these are donors, they don't work in marketing. You know, and they were literally saying as a group, they got to rebrand. People know, they know how it works. And because they know how it works, they appreciate being treated like a human being. And we also have to remember, you know, also in terms of how people give, you know, we, we talk about digital. Um, you know, there's lots of organisations want digital first and such like. And digital is growing, you know, it, it it's still very low, you know, the the amount of money that's, being generated for charities through digital routes, it's, it's still low. I, can't, I don't know what it is. I can't remember what the last um, figures were, but it's about 10%-ish of, of, of the total. But we have, there's two things that we need to remember, that your, your channel of giving is not necessarily the channel of inspiration, Then it will be people will see a TV ad and they go online or they get a pack and they go online. But the other thing to remember as well is, like, you know, you're a young man, Alex. When was
0: the last time you used a cheque? A youngish, yeah. Uh, cheque, I can't remember. Uh, every now and then I get sent a cheque when I get a small client and it's oh, like the, yeah. <laughs> someone has to <laughs> write a cheque to get signed by two trustees and have to, like, walk down <laughs> to the bank. With yeah. it. Well, the bank's gone now, so there's no bank on the high street. So now it's like, I have to Google, how do I? Yeah. I in a check,
1: <laughs> and, and that's the point you know you go into an appeals administration department and i think i, I think people who run you know supporter services or appeals administration are some of the unsung heroes of the fundraising world and there's so much knowledge there you know they're picking mm-hmm. up the phone every day answering questions they're yeah. opening envelopes every day you know they they're, they're on the the real front line of what donors want And look at the number of checks that still come through the door in in those envelopes, those BRE envelopes. And it's huge. And that's what we have to remember. That for somebody who's in their 70s or 80s, that feels a real way of giving. And it gives that sense I've done something because it's what they've always done. Younger people, you know, I'm pretty old now, you know, all my giving is online, but it's rarely driven online. It's in receipt to Packs, or something I've seen, or something something else. So, all key points that we have to, you know, take into account in, when understanding what people want to do when they want to want to give to us.
0: Yeah, it occurred to me when you were talking before you mentioned some of the figures in terms of the return on investment of like zero point three to zero point nine percent and stuff. But still, for people that are not familiar with the world of uh, individual fundraising and, and returns and that sort of thing, can you maybe just Give a bit of context of like what, what your expectations are when you, you're doing different types of kind of mail shots and things like that.
1: Yeah, I suppose there's three criteria you're looking at when you're doing individual giving. You're looking at size of your average gift. That's important. The higher your initial gift, the much more likely you're going to get larger gifts later on. People tend to anchor themselves and if, you know, if, if you start the anchoring at 20, 25 pounds, it's probably going to stick about 20, 25 pounds, hard to get them to jump up. Whereas if you can get people to anchor their first gift at 100 or 150 pounds, then it's much easier to in- increase their giving. You'll look at response rate, you know, whether it's warm or cold, um, you know, what percentage of your file are giving to you. And you'll finally, you'll, you'll look at ROI, which is return on investment. And that's normally sorry, Mark.
0: Sorry to uh, jump you off, but um, yeah, the response rates. What would what are the sort of averages for warm and cold? It depends on the file.
1: That's the issue. It depends on the calls. You know, if if you're looking at universities, for example, very very small numbers. You're looking at maybe a couple of percentage points at recruitment, but it's all age profiled. And so if you're looking at people who are seventy plus, it might be running at ten percent recruitment, but Across the file, it's it's lower than it's lower than that. But we would find if we have got our targeting right, we've got a good offer, and we get that out in the right way, we would be getting response rates to warm appeals somewhere somewhere around 0.8 to about two percent. Okay. Now, one of the things that's happened recently is less people do old-fashioned DM. And because less people do old-fashioned DM, direct marketing, mailing packs, it's better because they're not swamped by it. You know, we're, we're achieving better results than we would have done, say, seven or eight years ago in, in, in terms of that. In terms of ROI, again, 0.7 to 1.1, 1.2, something along those lines. Um, but again, it's getting it out at the right time. And that's, like, for example, you know, we know that the vast majority of cash giving happens in and around Christmas. So, end of November through to very, very early Jan, um, it might be 30% of all cash giving. You know, happens over that six, seven week period. So you know that can be a a powerful time to ask. But if you can create, you know, one of the things that we talk about Mm -hmm. in Blue Frog is creating rituals, getting ritualized giving. And you know, one example of this we've done for years and years and years with Marie Curie, for example, is putting stickers in their their Christmas appeal pack. They're really old fashioned, and Every time somebody new you know, has come into Curie, it's like, oh, they're too old-fashioned. Let's do some new stuff. But the donors love them, absolutely love them. And when we, we've done tests and we've left them out to see what the impact of leaving them out is, they actually ring up and say, where are our stickers? We use them every year. And so you become part of their Christmas ritual. So you remove those at your, at your peril. It's going to be quite interesting. We've just stopped work with Marie Curie and it's going to be interesting to see what they, what they do this year. But, but, but things like that can be very, very powerful. And the point that I made earlier on about Alzheimer's Society, creating a point in the year where people think, yeah, I do that. I do that. That's what I do. Like with sense, for example, working with children with complex disabilities it used to be deafblind. It's 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 now moved on from that. And one of the key points that we've created is we call it the holiday appeal, you know, where we where children get a chance to go away, and the mum and dad gets a break, and the children go away to specialist holiday centers to have a completely different experience. And it's one of the most powerful points in that, in Sense's in Donor's Diary. And when you speak to a sense donor, It's like, oh, yeah, I give to you at Christmas and I give to you at the holiday as well. So if you've created a ritual and if you've got a ritual, whether somebody's got a planned budget or not, you become part of their philanthropic portfolio. And that makes it very powerful.
0: Yeah, And just thinking about uh, smaller organizations who maybe haven't done this type of fundraising before, what would you say to them in terms of, Things to think about whether it's an opportunity for them, because obviously some of those high costs of acquisition and those kind of relatively low returns and investment and, you know, that needing to then be a very long game of then growing and cultivating mm. that, that kind of base of supporters. Is it something that's smaller, and I mean by small, I mean the kind of like a one million pound charity that mostly has grants and contracts and is looking to diversify its income. It, like, is it viable for them to do this type of thing, or is it just not really for them?
1: It's, it's one of those answers that's um, it, it depends. Every uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, every single every single answer in fundraising should be, you know, should have the prefix. It depends. Uh, yeah.
0: It maybe, maybe just give us like a couple of examples of like yeah. an organization like this could maybe think about X, Y, and Z, whereas one like this probably shouldn't bother.
1: Yeah, well, number one, um, if you've not got much budget, go out digitally in the first instance. See how you get on. You know, digital, if you do it right, can work incredibly well at the moment. You know, the key advice I have for everyone is stop the scroll. Three words, stop the scroll. That's what you need to do. And you know, a, a primary offer that you might you know, you might develop as part of your you know in terms of what the brand is defining your work as, might not necessarily be the most effective routine. Like for example, if you went out, let's say you were an organisation, and you wanted to save hedgehogs, okay, that's your that's your appeal. So you could do some ads digitally, and it would say, "Save the hedgehog." If people love hedgehogs, they might stop and they might look on it. But if you have got some form of celebrity out there who's particularly well known at the moment then that's going to do brilliantly if you can get a celebrity to do it there's something magical about celebrities with um digital stuff and you know you might be looking at response rates 10 or 12 times better than you know just going out with your primary offer but you have to do it well that's the point you know if you don't know what you're doing you can always screw it up you can screw everything up you have to do it well so it's you know yeah, with digital, you know, it's it's always eye contact. You know, the amount of stuff I see where you've got people looking away from the camera or got their head down or something, you know, it's 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 pointless, you know, to do. So that's that's a good route to go out and and test. You know, if you're looking at the meta platforms, so you're looking at Insta, you're looking at Facebook, you can get a good idea of what your offer is, you know, there. But if you're going beyond that. Um, and you're a small organization, the the key point is what's your audience, because that's the expensive thing. How do I go out and get a group of donors? And if you want to start doing individual fundraising, you are stepping on a conveyor belt. That's the point. Once you start, you have to stay on that conveyor belt. Otherwise, you might as well have just chucked your money away at the start, because you can get donors to engage in different ways. But it's it's constant. You have to constantly update. You have to speak. You have to feedback. You have to thank. It takes time. And so I've got a presentation that I do, which was based on some budgets that were done by it was one of my old staff members, um, Keelan, who I think now works for Ask Direct out in Ireland, but she might have given up that now and simon scriver obviously from fundraising everywhere and they put a budget together of what you could do for a thousand pounds so it, i took that or thousand euros and i took that base budget and i developed it you know and the, but the key point is who do you start with so if you're going to be writing a letter to people who do you get it to and, and you start by finding all your contacts. So you get your contacts from your, your trustees, you get your suppliers, anyone like that who's willing to send out a letter in effect on your behalf. And that's the important thing. It, one of the points that we have to remember, it's not just what you're asking for, it's who asks. And you know, years ago, um, when I was at the YMCA, we had a, um, a lord who was uh, our president. And he was very well connected in the city. And his appeals that we used to send out to wealthy individuals, we used to do a campaign at the YMCA very years, many years ago where the recruitment campaign was asking for £5,000, cold. And it was brilliant. It would generate 13, 14 to 1 on cold recruitment. It was amazing. So for every pound we'd spend, we'd bring in £14. It was huge amounts of profit. And when we opened the letters... You would, you would find notes in there and it would say to the Lord, dear Barry, his name wasn't Barry, but dear Barry, um, so lovely to see you at Bernard's for drinks the other day. Here's your £5,000. And eventually he retired and stood down and we had another Lord who wasn't so well connected and the appeals just failed overnight. And we had to ask that Lord to come back, in a way, and be the patron of the appeal, which he was happy to do. He's a lovely man, and it, and it worked again. And, and that's the key thing, you know. I've I've done appeals with celebrities. Some celebrities add money, and and some take them away. It's quite surprising, you know, who they are. But you know, I can tell you, well, I'm sure he won't mind. But Michael Palin is amazing, uh, you know. You get Michael Palin to support your appeals, it does brilliantly. But I've got others that I won't mention who actually suppress so response rates. So often when you're putting an appeal together, you want, you know, the person who's asking should know the people that they're writing to. So it's almost like you write the letter, you produce the brochure or the leaflet or whatever. But the person says, I am working, I am volunteering, I am doing this, and we need your help. Will you give to me? And it works. It works. That's the approach. And we see it work all the time. We see it work on just giving. We see it work on, you know, Facebook fundraising programs that if you ask your mates, your mates give. And so you start with that and then you thank. And how do you thank? You go down to wherever, WH Smith's, or you go down to Hallmark Cards and you buy yourself a cheap pack of thank you cards and you just write handwritten thank yous and you send it out. You don't just email. If, if you know, one tip, don't just send an email. Donors now see that email they get three seconds after they've pressed donate. They see it as a receipt. Mm. They do not see it as a thank you. And even if you send a secondary email two or three days later, if you want to increase your second gift rate, send a real thank you and make it be. We talk about it as uh, the term we use at Blue Frog is dynamic banking. We, we did this with Sense. It was a fabulous test back in about 2018. They'd spent most of their investment was sort of like text giving. So they're recruiting people low value, getting them on board. And it was fine, it worked well. But that was when we started to see that, that drop off. You know, the problem you've got is you've only got 30-odd, 35% of the population giving regular gifts at any one time. And you max out. And what donors say to you, once they've got four or five regular gifts, it becomes an in-and-out decision. Like if I'm going to give to you, who am I going to stop giving to? It rare, you know, you'll have a sector of the market that will just add another, another. But once you get to four, five, six, it's a different thought process. It's not why should I give? It's why should I give to you and cancel someone else? And that needs to be taken into account. But with sense, we really focused on what we could do to give the donors a, you know, a really good experience of being being a donor and the idea behind dynamic thanking is you never get the same thank you twice you always get a surprise so within that letter there might be a photograph or there might be a thank you card or it might be a press cutting or it might be a scribbled note or a child's drawing but every one of those thank yous becomes you know the best thing you receive you know pretty much the best thing you receive and and that caused everything to really go up. So second gift rates grew up, um, increased the number of committed givers went up. It just grows and grows and grows. But it's about making sure going back to donor needs, that reward is, is answered. And you do that with great banking. So for... An organization, a small organization, that's where they really have to invest their time and money. I I used to work with a guy years ago when we were at the YMCA. There's a guy called um, Ron Ingemels. He was a reverend. We used to do a church appeal every single year, and he would do the thank you. And I never asked him to do this, but one of the things he would do, and again, lovely man, he would do a little bit of research on each church that gave us a gift. And in his thank you, he would say, he would make a comment about the church. I know your parish, or I, I love the fact that at your church, you have this, or there's an architectural element. And he would highlight that. And, you know, I was a young fundraiser those, and I thought it was quite nice, but I didn't realise the impact it was actually happening. He was doing half my job for me by prepping those people for the gift next year, by putting in effort. And I didn't know, I didn't recognise what that was. But he did a fabulous, fabulous gift for me. That was a fabulous gift for young people. And no one told him to. He
0: just knew his market very well. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like it's almost like so much today is about automation, isn't it? And how can you reduce the amount of time it takes you to do any given task? How can you streamline things and use all the digital tools available? But it, it seems like what you're saying actually works is to do things in more of a manual way to, you know, get out your your pen and your little note cards and things, and yeah. really take the time to look after people, and that's that's what's going to get the results. And that's a really important point.
1: If if you want a point of
0: competition that
1: you can build on, it is automation. Those organisations, like you know, somebody will win the award, you know, best stewardship. I'm on the I'm on the computer. Five minutes after reading, here you go. Here's fifty quid. What do I get? Okay, I've got that email. It's quite nicely written. And then leave it two or three weeks. Do I get anything in the post? No. Back on. Let's give you a bit more. 70 quid. So two, what we would describe as white mail gifts. You know, that you know, white mail used to be the envelopes you got. BREs, you know, the business reply envelope was always brown, manila. Whereas an, an envelope that most people use was white. So the term for it became white mail. Unsolicited gifts and somebody who'd given you a couple of unsolicited gifts was worth about 10 times more than a normal donor there was something about them that, you know they were really showing you their commitment because not only were they giving you that gift they were giving you their address and that they you know 10 times more likely to do a legacy 10 times more likely to sign up to a regular gift 10 times more likely to do anything you ask and that was, it's that element that, that we need to focus on, that doing something special by showing we value you, that's what people love. I, I was presenting the other day and I, I had a, vi- a video of, of somebody was talking about their disappointment with the charity and how they'd felt let down by that charity. And they summed it up when they said, the only way that we can really assess what you're, what you're doing, whether it's right or wrong, Outside of the stories we read in the news, is how you treat us. And if you treat us with respect, I'm pretty much going to think you're going to be treating the people you work with res- with respect as well. And it's, it's very simple. It's a very simple approach. If you, you know, we, we don't give people boxes of things to open up when they get home. When we spend the money, how do donors know? How do donors know? So it's those elements that make the difference.
0: Yeah. And I mean, with this type of fundraising, obviously you're talking about big volumes. So like, is it, is it possible to do that for everyone or are you looking at different segments and it's like if you're getting a few quid in the brown envelope, then they're getting a standard thank you. But if you're getting the 70 quid in a white envelope, then you, that, those are the ones that you're looking after a bit more because in practical terms, presumably you can't take that kind of very personalized approach with every single one.
1: If you're a small organization, you can. If you're dealing with hundreds of donors, you probably can do that relatively easily. And, and they really do value you. When we're talking to donors, if, if they're talking about the big charities, they'll often use the term business or company rather than charity. It's very common that they will talk about, you know, organizations, companies. And you know, one of the things that we've seen, and I, I think it's a negative, is when, when charities have adopted commercial branding techniques. They've associated them even closer with the corporate world. And the distinction that donors are often talking about is smaller to medium-sized charities feel more real, feel like more how charities, how charities should be. And with them, you know, the more you can focus on that authentic approach, the better. Now we've got different groups. Okay, you've got different groups of donors. So, you know, you've got your high net worth, however you want to treat that. And we, and we traditionally talk about mid-value. Mid-value, I think, is, is the wrong term now. I've got another piece of research that we're going to be sharing that defining somebody by what they give. And mid-value can be anywhere between two hundred and 5000 or £10,000, and it's wrong. And we've sort of like broken that group down into the people who've got a religious approach versus those who, you know, are giving to gain control, really. And The, the, the other group, you know, with we, we, two names, humble and holy, for the people who are giving through some sort of religious driver. And those people who are concerned, almost like giving out of a sense of duty, they recognize their privilege. We call them sentinels, you know, which is another term for a guardian or a protector. And they both have slightly different approaches. That group definitely should get the personalized stuff. And then it's really what's most cost effective for you. Now we find that you can go down almost as low as people who are giving you 50 quid. And you can give them that treatment. If you've got a program that are sending out a few hundred, you've got a few hundred donors every year giving you size of gifts, you can probably add another couple of hundred to those quite cheaply. 50 quid is a very, very low cutoff, really. You know, 100 is probably more realistic. Maybe 200, 250 is where you, you, you can do the personalized stuff. But don't forget, it's really easy. You know, if you're, you know, you're just sending out your computerized you know, form thank yous, just change them, change them a couple of times a year, just stick something else in there. You know, could be a post-it. Thanks for your gift this year. Really appreciated. You know, and tell people, you say to people, this is the third year you've given to us. Wonderful. You're great. It shows you know them. There's a line, mm-hmm. uh, K. Sprinkle Grace, her name is. And there's a couple of books, and it might even be called this, but there's a line she uses, and it's called, Show Me You Know Me. And you know, that's, that's what you're doing.
0: Mm. And with those going back to like a, a smaller charity that's not done individual fundraising before, and if they may do the stuff you suggested to get started, they're presumably then trying to get those donors on board that are given at that kind of 50 to a few hundred pounds rather than the, I suppose, people traditionally look at they look to what the big charities are doing and they look at those kind of appeals to sign up for £5 a month and to then look to Uplift. Would you recommend that people go straight in with a could you give us £100 or that type of thing?
1: It's not really that. You've got to be appropriate. You know, if you're asking somebody who can't afford you for 100 quids, can't afford it 100 quids, it can be a bit offensive, you know. So you have to get it appropriate. What I was really thinking about were those people who might, you know, be friends of trustees that might be a little mm-hmm. bit wealthier, you know, not all yeah. trustees are wealthy by by all means, but sometimes you can find that, you know, maybe other, you know, people who are your suppliers, you know, running businesses, you know, networks in the local community. I don't know if you're linked with, you know, the Rotary or the Lions or something like that, but it's those groups where you can prompt a little higher, but all, you know, but give your prompt, but always recognize that you don't put people under pressure to give what they can't afford. There's no point saying to somebody, we want 200 quid. That's, that's shocking for some people. It's got to be appropriate. The more you know them, the more you can be appropriate to what they can give. Because you know you don't want to offend people at any point. And asking people who can't afford it for too much you know, will offend. So when you're small, if you are starting out with that group and you know who they are, you might have a good idea of how much you can ask for. And it's what we ask, you know, the, the person who's asking feels comfortable with as well. So the answer to fundraising problems is not going out asking for everyone for 200 quid, because I guarantee that's going to cause you problems. Mm. It's asking for the appropriate sum for the appropriate person. Like if you go out in a press ad, let's say you put a press ad out, it's not very personal, so it doesn't matter. It's not going to offend anyone. So if you put a press ad saying, oh, it's 100 quid to do this, It's not going to offend anyone. It's a press ad. It's not personal. If you write to somebody saying, I want you to give me 100 quid, that's an awful lot for many, many people. You can't do that. It has to be appropriate. So when I talk about mid-value, it's often because it's people have already identified themselves. So one of the key things you can use on data, a great technique to work out who these people are, is look for voluntary uplifters. So if your ask is 20 quid, for example, your primary ask is 20 pounds, you go out and you ask for 20 quid, some people will give you more. Why are they giving you more? And the way you find out is you ring them up and you thank them. You thank them and you say in your conversation, you gave us 50 quid. Was there any reason for that? Because we only asked for 20 and they will tell you the answer. They'd say, well, actually, you know, I value your work and I I can afford a little bit more than 20 pounds. So I thought I'd give you 50. Or they might say, alternatively, oh, we had a little bit of luck. We came up on the lottery. We won 200 quid on the lottery and I wanted to share my fortune. You know that they're not going to win the lottery again. Mm. So it's being appropriate. Everything is about listening to the donor and responding alternatively. You You know, I've got examples of appeals where people have given us on that first appeal, maybe a few hundred. And then you will go in with maybe a slightly larger prompt. And I've had checks, not me personally, but the charities have had checks, £100,000 because you've given them that sense that you're quite a powerful organisation. You know, and people will often give you a test gift first. And that test is to see how you treat them. And then that second gift could be much larger. And it can actually go much, you know, they might give you four or five test gifts before you get the biggie. But it's being appropriate. And I cannot emphasize that enough. You know, you can't go out and just think, oh, everyone in the world can afford to give me 100 quid. They cannot. If we look at what's happening in the market at the moment, okay, if we took you know, deciles, so we, we break down the population by 10% groups by wealth, okay, pretty much anyone outside of the top three deciles is really squeezed at the moment financially. With inflation, that seventy percent of the population are struggling. Those people giving to you might be sacrificing something else to give to you. You know, a pound. Be grateful for that, because that's coming out of a really tight budget. But if we look at, like, for example, the top twenty percent of the population, they control over two thirds of all the wealth there is in the country. And if you start getting to the top one percent, they're wealthier than they've been for a long, long, long time. We've got levels of income inequality at the moment that we've not seen since before the First World War, you know, where the top few percentage have done incredibly well and do not give enough in my mind. So we have to be careful. What you give, we have to be respectful for that, and we have to give it appropriate. So it's not just about asking for large sums of money, it's being appropriate for that audience. And if you can't be appropriate, be very, very careful about using prompts. Use an open ask, use an open ask, give examples of what money might spend, but leave it down to them. You know, we've, we've just done a study where we've spoken to 20 or 30 mid value donors. And the sense that that group gave us was I could give you more. Okay. Out of these, that's, I can't remember exactly what it was 27, 28 donors. Out of that 27, 28, two people said you're asking for too much, okay? So it was a small number, but I don't want to offend those people. I don't want them to think that we don't respect them and we're not grateful for their generosity. Be appropriate, be appropriate.
0: What have you found, because I know you do lots of testing, so I suppose listening to all of that, you think, okay, well, I can either, and you know, assuming we don't know people well enough to know exactly what to ask we can either leave it open-ended and not put a figure in there mm-hmm. we could guess an amount and as you said you know you primary thing is 25 you just put 25 in or you could do like the kind of three bullet points of yeah. like you know 10 pound does this 50 pound does this a bigger amount does something else what what do you find do you of those kind of different options do you i know it's going to be a, it depends answer but do you see like some things work particularly well or particularly badly? Like is, there, like, is it particularly bad to not put any figures in there at all and everyone gives you like £5?
1: Now, the problem you've got is that what people see as the average gift you give to charity was forced down for a long while. Okay. One of the things that happened after the, the financial crash, 2008, 2008, 2009 financial crash, and that, that was when we... If you, looked, if you look at giving and you compare it to GDP, it always vaguely used to track GDP. It's not much. It's 03 0.4% of GDP. But it used to track. And at that point was where we broke from that. So after the recession, there was a, there was a dip, and then GDP started to take off. We flatlined from that point on. And what happened at that? There was a huge amount of very, very low value asks that started to go out. You know, a lot, a lot of £3 a month, a lot of text giving, £3 a month stuff. And, you know, it, it brought in a fair number of people, but suddenly the price of changing the world um, or, you know, or, or solving a big problem was presented as not much more than what is for most people a handful of change that you might, you know, in the old days when we used cash, you know, you might put on the side of the, you know, in a money box or on the side before you left the house. And uh, you wouldn't put it back in your pocket the next day because it was, you know, the term shrapnel, you know, was often used to describe that. And, And and we flatlined. And I think that's one of the reasons why that we did flatline that the ask, the value of what we could do with money went down. But we need to prompt, we need to show what can be achieved. So for example, one of our clients we work with, we do press recruitment and we will go in quite high. So we've got a prompt at about 70 quid. Um, we'll have another one at maybe 140, another one at 210. And our average gift will be about maybe 120, 125 pounds. And that's a great donor. Somebody's coming in with their initial gift. There's lots of potential there, but you've got to do work. You know, Get on the phone, thank them personally, find out a little bit about this, you know, their background. Make the next request appropriate. Listen to them as a human being and get that well. But it is that level of choice. Now, years ago at the YMCA, we used to use a... um, We had a thing called the Fellowship of Patrons. I didn't create it. Someone else created it. And it was basically Terry Waite. Do you remember Terry Waite? Um, He was was held hostage. I think he was a negotiator for the um, Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah. He was held hostage for a number of years. And we had a group of supporters called the Fellowship of Patrons, and it was priced at £700. And on the back of our donation form, every time we did a cold appeal, and our prompt in those days was £25 at the YMCA, because that was the cost of a, the first night's accommodation at the YMCA for a young person coming in. Uh, and it was quite a high prompt. Back in the, uh, you know, the early 90s, it's probably be, a, be equivalent you know, with the inflation we've seen over the last two or three years, 60 or 70 quid today is a cold recruitment device, but it worked very well. But we had this £700 on the back of the donation form. And every single time we sent out an appeal, we'd get people signing up. And, and remember the line that we wrote, there is no benefit to being a member of the Fellowship of Patrons other than the recognition that you are making a difference to young people today. That was it, that was it. But people would do that. So it's just making those prompts appropriate and respectful. But yeah, drop them in, drop them in. And uh, you can can put very, very big outliers in an appeal because donors will know it's not necessarily meant for them. You know, if if you're asking the letter is for 50 quid, but on the donation form it's got, should you wish to give 10,000, this is what we might do with it.
0: It's not offensive. Yeah. Sneaky. Nice tip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. I think we're we're probably getting low for time. So it might start to wrap up. I know we didn't even touch on rebrands, so we'll maybe save that for another conversation. Oh,
1: <laughs> I've got a lot on rebrands. let you, you like. run, and run
0: with that one. <laughs> um, I think yeah, if we start to wrap up. What would you recommend for people if they want to read up a lot more on individual fundraising and and related topics, sort of resources or or particular books or places that you would recommend they go to find out more?
1: Yeah. One of the things that you have to remember is that, you know, the golden days of sort of like DM fundraising are a few years ago, and it still still works, still works, still works fabulously. And, you know, I have a couple of books that I use that I really like. Um, One of them is called Fundraising Techniques and Case Histories by E. Harroward Phillips. I'll hold that up in case you want to do a screen grab. I bought that for Oxfam for £1, one of the greatest books I've ever bought. And another one is Harold J. Seymour Designs for Fundraising. And uh, they're two great books about how fundraising works. And also you've got George Smith, Asking Properly, which is another great book. And uh, buy them from the White Line Press, Ken Burnett's company. You know, that's a fabulous book. You'll go online and they'll be available on eBay at like 100 quid. Get in touch with the White Line Press and you'll get one for 10, 15 quid. Great, great books. But today there's a few writers out there that I'd strongly recommend. Tom Hearn, all of Tom Hearn's books are fabulous. Search for Tomahaean online, and there's some great stuff there. Yeah. And luckily, I've got these all on my desk. That's asking properly. This is because these are all the books that I refer to constantly <laughs> when I'm stuck or I want an idea. I look for those books. So, Tomahaean, who, who, else, who else do I really value in terms of their, you know, what they write and their, and their blogs? This guy called John Lett comes out of Canada, works with Jen Love. His stuff is all very strong, and he's got a book as well. Is it on my desk? I think it's called Creative Deviations. That's a good book. It might be at work. We're recording this from home. I've not got it on my pile, but that's, that's a, a very good book. But as I mentioned, all of Tom Ahern's Tom books are, are great. Uh, Jeff Brooks is another great author, great blogger that you should read. And If you focus on that group there... That's a good grounding. And I think if you read those, you'll do very well. And, of course, you've got my own blog as well, Queer Ideas, and I, and I share a lot of research. But my, my biggest learning I have now is just speaking to donors. We have our own in-house researcher. And you know that, for me, is where you get the greatest level of insight from. And that would be my recommendation. You know, once a week, call donors up, you know, Just call donors up. Find someone who's given you an outlier gift. They give them more than they might normally. And just ring them up and just say, I wanted to say thank you um, for your gift. And ask that question. It's a magic question. Why did you decide to support us today? And they might say, oh, you know, nothing really. Just, you know, got your appeal and thought it was worthwhile. And they might want you to go straight away. But others will say, well, you know, this condition impacted on my mum. Or when I was a child, like children's charities, you always hear this with children's charities, people talking it. When I was at school, there was this boy or there, there was this girl, and we knew that mum and dad would mean to them, and we didn't do anything about it. you know. And, and it stayed with them for 50 years, that memory. And that's what they're doing. They're helping their childhood friend. They're helping their childhood friend 50 or 60 years later because they didn't do it then. And it's such a powerful drive. And it works all the time. You, know, you speak to people who give to refugees. They've had that experience of powerlessness, of losing a lot. And there's always a reason. It's always a reason. And and it's the commitment that that that, that drives. Lots of people, it will be a one-off response, oh, I'm just going to do this once, and then they go, but the committed donor, there's something that's happened. There is something that's happened in their past that drives them.
0: And the research that you guys do, what's the best place for us to find that? Is it on the Blue Frog website or sign up for your emails? Or what's the how do we keep up to date with those oh. sort of things? Because so obviously you're doing these studies quite a lot. And I know nobody... you're suggesting that I'm a much more competent um, business <laughs> owner
1: than I am <laughs> a um, Our blog's offline at the moment. Not our blog, websites offline. We're just having it redesigned. And so that will be online soon. The blog is the best place. It's called queerideas.co.uk. And uh, there's loads of... There's more, you know, there's videos there. I do a podcast as well. I've not done it for ages. It's called Why People Give, and you can find that on Apple, but it's not been updated for two years. I and mean, what I do is I used to do interviews with people who were very, very experienced fundraisers. So Ken Burnett's on there, Lyndall Stein, who did fabulous work with the ANC. Her work with the ANC years ago was magnificent. For Giles Pegram, another lots of his work that he did with the NSPCC and Oxfam, his Oxfam work in the 60s. What he achieved in the 60s was amazing. You know, as a young, a young guy at school, 15, 16, he basically did a, like a modern day, you know, a, not a modern day, but he did almost like the original liver. T- as
0: okay.
1: a student, amazing. You know, they, they did this massive walk where they engaged loads and loads of young people. And they all walked towards Wembley Stadium where they put on a concert, you know, with huge bands of the day. So it's amazing stuff that he achieved in those days. It's remarkable. You know, one of the most remarkable fundraising stories ever. And then you'll find out about his NSPCC stuff. Interestingly, he he says, I only ever worked on outside of Oxfam at NSPCC. He was there for 20 odd years. He said, I only ever worked on two campaigns. You know we had two campaigns there was the millennium fundraising campaign and there was the child cruelty you know the the stop campaign the full stop it's, yeah yeah and it you know it's a day with the only two campaigns that ever worked on and look, genius and you, you can learn so much so listen particularly giles but there's a few others on there. i only did about um seven or eight you, you obviously you're doing you know you, you do well but you know it's fitting it in
0: for me. Yeah, it's a, yeah. a time-consuming format. Oh for sure. I know. it so is. I it's it's, I mean, it, it's interesting cause some of these, these sorts of conversations, like the ones you've had there, are timeless. Really, so there, you can do half a dozen episodes and just have that as a series of like really valuable content, yeah. as long as people can find it. Because that's the thing. It's you know, if you're not updating, then yeah, people just don't know it exists unless it's you know, if it's on your website and it's like. Here's our blogs. Here's our podcasts. Here's our videos. Then you know people can just dip into the format they like. And if it's yeah, if if it's kind of evergreen content, then there's no reason why it matters whether it's recorded last week or two years ago.
1: Yeah, and there's yeah. one. There's one other thing that I do. I have a Pinterest board that I did years ago. Pinterest. Who uses Pinterest? <laughs> um, and what I did is because I'm a geek, I started collecting old charity ads, press ads. So I subscribe to various archives, newspaper archives and articles and things like that. I like reading about attitudes to giving 100 years ago, or even 200 years ago, and it's all the same. It's exactly the same as it is now. The complaints are exactly the same. You should read about what happened to Thomas Bernardo when what they did in their photographs they used to use, they would make them look worse. So, they would get young people and they had before and after shots, and they'd always scruff up the ones before. So, you know, even if they arrived with shoes and a coat, shoes would go off, coat would go off, you know, rub some dirt on their face. And then after, you've got this fine, upstanding young man or young woman. And they started doing lots of different ways of fundraising. And it's quite interesting. And they started opening up coffee shops, okay, as a way of raising money. Now, commercial coffee shops started to get their nose put out of joint, and so the people running that, and I think also pubs as well, brought a case against Dr. Bernardo about all of these second, you know, say, oh, you're, you know, you're make, making things seem out worse, seem worse than they were. You've got to remember, we're talking about the 1850s here. You're making them seem like the worst. They'll... So there was this big court case where Thomas Bernardo was taken to call for being a fraudulent fundraiser, you know. So all the thing it just goes around and around. And by looking at that stuff, you're well-prepared. Anyway, on this Pinterest board, there's over 1,000 press ads. Just search on Pinterest, Mark Phillips, old charity ads, and it's packed full of headlines, okay? So you just look at these ads, and there's ads going back to 1750. But there are so many great headlines that you could use today as a fundraiser. You know, they were used in the 1930s. And often you'll see the same ad in the 1930s redone in the 1990s. You know, will you be a father Christmas to this little boy? First time I saw that was about 1910. But, you know, you see NSPCC almost like doing similar approaches today. And cancer, cancer will be cured by science. In our lifetime, nineteen thirty-eight. You know, it's the
0: same. It's the
1: same as it is
0: now. I'll definitely check that out. Mm. <laughs> Sounds well worth a, a little glance over. Before we guys have anything else, any anything, you want to promote anything? You want to ask of the listener? Not
1: really. One of the things I've got is, if people are interested in this little, how to put together a DM program for a thousand pounds or a thousand euros. If someone wants it, you know, I've got a little presentation. I did it for the IOF Northwest a number of years ago. So it's for smaller orgs. If they want it, I'm more than happy to send it to them. It's mark at bluefroglondon.com. And I've always said to people, no one's ever taken me up on it. If you want to test it, I will pay the thousand pounds for you to test it. So if there's any orgs out there who will do it for a year, so let's see if it works. I'll give you the £1,000 that you need to, to run it as well. So there you go. It's a nice offer.
0: Sounds good. I know i would definitely take, take you up on that. What's uh, Just out of interest, what's the £1,000? What does that get spent on?
1: It's a combination of emails and simple DM and thank you cards, all the stuff I spoke about earlier on. So buying the thank you cards from WH Smiths or your local news agent, putting a base letter together and, you know, and, and sending them out to your suppliers and your trustees, friends, it's that program. Yeah. And how you can do that for a thousand pounds It's out of date. You know, it's probably 1,200, 1,300 quid now, but it's still possible. And it talks about the numbers, what you might
0: expect. Mm.
1: And it's a route that you could go down.
0: Yeah, cool. I know a few organizations that I think might be interested in that. Um, so, well, yeah, if, if people
1: want that, just, just uh, yeah. let me know.
0: Yeah, cool. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for your time. Thank you for that generous offer and for all the resources and everything you've recommended. We'll get all of that stuff up on the webpage so people can find that as well, rather than I to scribble it all down. Yeah, thank you for your time. No worries. Really thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time and attention. I know how precious a resource time is. I hope you enjoyed the show. If I could trouble you for a further two minutes of your day, I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a review on your podcast player via ratethispodcast.com charity. You can engage with us on LinkedIn and Twitter, just search Charity Impact Podcast or search Charity Impact Podcast in your browser to find our website where you can email me directly and you can subscribe to our email list for the opportunity to submit questions for me to ask upcoming guests. You can also find all the show notes and the previous episodes and links to resources that our guests have recommended there. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.